Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Jennifer and Lance. This series of Crimes of the Occult is very exciting. Jen, can you tell us a little bit about what our listeners are about to hear? Yes, just in time for the Halloween spooky season. Each story was chosen because a crime occurred, yes, but each has an element that is unexplainable, occult, or just plain scary. Each one of us takes one of these stories, we narrate it, and we present it to you all for your listening pleasure. Think of them as bedtime stories to give you nightmares. And here's Lance with The Changeling of Brittany. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. The Changeling of Brittany In the spring of 1922, a little girl went missing from her family's farmstead in the Brittany region of France. She was located a few weeks later, wandering 300 miles away from her home. Her parents rejoiced upon their daughter's prodigal return, but began to notice some bizarre behavior in the girl. When a horrifying discovery was made in a neighboring field, they began to question just who was the little girl in their home. The 1920s in France are referred to as Année Folle, or the crazy years. It was marked by much of the same exultation that the United States experienced in its own jazz age. Josephine Baker scandalized France by dancing the Charleston, and Coco Chanel popularized the boyish, chic, flapper style that has come to so characterize the fashion of this era. Much of this craziness from Paris, however, failed to reach the more remote regions of France. Indeed, it had barely touched the rural hamlet of Saint-Riville, the farthest northwestern tip of Brittany. It is safe to say that this village has remained unchanged for centuries. Saint-Riville is considered a commune, or a division of the French Republic parceled out to historical villages. The children of Saint-Riville still to this day attend a bilingual school for both French and the regional dialect of Breton. There is no telling how long the Picard ancestors had settled this land and worked its soil. At the dawn of the 20th century, Francois Picard inherited the homestead and his wife, whose first name is never given in the historical record, and their nine children all shared the burden of running the farm. Their youngest child, Pauline, only two years old, could not contribute to any of the chores and perhaps strained the large family's already limited resources. It is reported in local papers that Pauline was mostly raised by her elder sisters and her parents had little to do with her upbringing. Pauline is described by her family and neighbors as being a gregarious little girl who would happily chat with any day laborer or delivery person that happened by. She would wander around the farm, 
relatively unsupervised, and chased the family cat through the fledgling spring crop. April 6, 1922 was a day like any other. It was verging on spring, yes, but the air still had that bite of winter. Dressed in only a frock, stockings, and old hand-me-down clogs, Pauline's elder sister narrowly missed the little girl to remind her to wear a coat as the two-year-old toddled out of the door to go play in the courtyard of the farm. Her sister only caught a flash of tangled blonde hair darting around the corner of the barn. There is another account reported by a competing regional newspaper that Pauline was last seen in the pasture caring for horses with her siblings. It is difficult to say which account is true. These instances are the last time anyone saw the little girl. Or rather, the last time anyone saw the original Pauline Picard. After a few hours crept by, the elder Picard children began to worry that Pauline had not turned up for lunch. They alerted their parents, and within a few hours, the entire family and fellow residents fanned out across the farm and surrounding fields, calling Pauline's name. When these efforts failed to coax the little girl from her hiding places among the hills, Francois and his wife must have come to recognize that most devastating of truths. Their child had vanished. The next day, local police were notified of the missing girl and a large-scale effort of over 150 volunteers came together to search the countryside for Pauline Picard. There were rumors circulating around town that a caravan of gypsies had stolen through the valley and absconded with the child. It is important to note that gypsies, or the nomadic Romani people who emigrated from Eastern Europe, were subject to widespread racism in France and elsewhere in the West. Even as recently as 2016, stories circulated throughout France of Romani people in white vans who went around abducting children. Needless to say, these stories were never substantiated, and indeed nothing ever came of these rumors concerning the abduction of Pauline Picard. Among the persons of interest questioned early in the investigation was Christophe Caramon. Caramon had recently been released from prison where he was incarcerated for a reportedly violent crime. He was a man in his 50s who walked with a slight limp and after his release from prison became an itinerant worker. Caramon secured employment at the Picard farm in exchange for a place to stay a while and get his life in order. There are many accounts from members of the Picard family, other workers, and neighbors that Caramon doted upon Pauline and frequently chatted with her and allowed her to follow him around as he did his work. But authorities caught up with Caramon in the town of Chateauneuf, some 200 miles away. Although Caramon's violent history and his proximity and opportunity to abduct Pauline is damning, the police later cleared him of any involvement in the disappearance. He may just have been a man down on his luck who took a shine to the friendly Pauline and took off when it looked like the police would get involved. 
What additionally surfaced during the investigation was another story from a woman who lived nearby. She said she had witnessed two strangers, a man and a woman, who happened by the Picard farm on the day of Pauline's disappearance and watched the little girl play in the courtyard for some time. Weeks went by without any answers for the Picard family. Francois and his wife became increasingly desperate to find their daughter. The silent terrors that lurked in the minds of all parents. Is my child safe? Is my child hungry? Is my child cold? Is my child in pain? These terrors must have come to a crescendo for the Picards during that bleak month, so it was almost proof of the divine when a justice of the peace from Shebu arrived at their farm. Pauline had been found. And the justice of the peace had a strange tale to tell. A little girl matching Pauline's description was found wandering down a small alley, completely unaccompanied. Naturally, a two-year-old walking around without a guardian drew the attention of the residents of Chabouve. By all accounts of those who interacted with the girl, she was a bubbly, sweet girl who seemed happy despite her rather desperate situation. The Justice of the Peace brought along a photograph of the child to show the Picards and it was a dead ringer for Pauline. The question stands, however, how in the world does a two-year-old end up 300 miles from her home? Perhaps because of this, the Picards were guarded against hope. Yet, to ignore the possibility that it could be Pauline would be unconscionable. So the Picards decided to travel swiftly to see if the girl was in fact their daughter. Now this must have been quite a harrowing and expensive journey for the poor Picard family, and this speaks not only to how convincing a lookalike the child must have been, but also to the family's desperation to recover their daughter. Upon arriving in Shabouv, the Picards went to an orphanage where the girl was being cared for. But if the Picards had hoped for a joyful reunion, for the girl to run, arms outstretched, towards her mother and father, that was not what happened. The girl seemed barely to recognize the Picards and was very distant toward them. Moreover, she looked half-starved, hardly resembling the plump, happy little girl the family remembered. Additionally, the girl barely said a word and did not seem to understand when her parents spoke in their regional dialect of Breton. Though not explicitly stated in the historical record, it seems the girl spoke and understood French. Nevertheless, her mother chalked up the girl's strange behavior to trauma and was convinced it was indeed Pauline. The Picards returned to their home in saint Rival with the little girl and tried their best to normalize her daily routine and get her reacquainted with the life she left behind nearly a month before. While the little girl did not speak much, newspapers reported that she used a few Breton words and called the family cat by name. During the first weeks of Pauline's return, a very bizarre thing occurred. A local farmer, Yves Mata, 
approached Francois and asked him directly if he thought the girl was in fact Pauline. This was strange because Mata had little contact with Pauline before her disappearance and even less with her when she arrived home. That he would know anything of Pauline's character or behavior was suspect. In the same conversation with Francois, Mata reportedly exclaimed, God help me, I am guilty, and ran off. He was soon after checked of his own volition into a mental asylum where he remained. If what Mata said is true and not the false confession of a man in need of psychiatric care, we can glean two things. One, that a crime had been committed. Pauline had either been abducted and abandoned or abducted and killed. Two, that the little girl in the Picard household was not Pauline. While the shock of Mata's outburst remained fresh in the Picard's nightmares, their world was about to be rocked once more. While wandering his fields adjacent to the Picard farm, another farmer discovered something horrific lying amongst the new spring growth. At first glance, it looked like the desiccated corpse of an animal that foxes or carrion birds had picked apart. However, upon closer inspection, the farmer realized that it was, in fact, the mangled corpse of a little girl. The body was decapitated, one leg had been torn off, and a skull, clean of flesh, sat nearby. Perhaps most unnervingly of all, next to the body sat a neatly folded frock and old hand-me-down clogs. The farmer ran to the Picard farm at once and told Francois what he had found. It is difficult to imagine what must have been careening through Francois' mind as he followed his neighbor out to the field. It simply cannot be. He must have chanted like a mantra. It simply cannot be. This journey, though only a few hundred yards over land he had been reared on, must have seemed like over alien ground. It simply cannot be. Francois must have spent all his years on this land, running its soil through his hands, caressing each new leaf, fretting when the soil did not produce, rejoicing when it did. Life on a farm teaches many things, not only that life is crucial, but that life is persistent. Now what lay out in his neighbor's field may have challenged Francois' belief in that persistence of life. No newspaper reported Francois' reaction to the body of the little girl. If he screamed, if he beat his chest, but they do report that after studying the scene, Francois was convinced that the body laying in that field was that of his daughter Pauline. The clothing matched the ones she had last been seen wearing, 
the stockings that lay tattered on her remaining leg were the same color and caught on a nearby shrub a lock of blonde hair fluttered in the wind Francois's wife also came to inspect the remains and she too was horrifyingly yet soberly convinced that it was Pauline the strange thing is that the place where Pauline's body had been discarded was land that searchers had canvassed in the days following the girl's disappearance 150 searchers had seen nothing she had to have been placed there after the fact later that day the police were notified that a body had been found however it took the authorities until the next day to arrive at the field all through the night neighbors took turns watching over the tiny body of Pauline Picard so that animals could not further scatter her remains or indeed no guilty persons could revisit when the police began conducting an investigation into the death of the little girl they sent the skull and remains to a doctor who might be able to parse out what happened though theories arose that the little girl had gotten lost that day in April and succumbed to the elements that her body had been ravaged by wild animals the doctor found this idea to be incompatible with the autopsy. Animals very infrequently decapitate their prey and usually go first for the abdomen instead of the extremities. The skin on the little girl had been lacerated and her leg removed. The doctor also returned yet another mystery to the police. The skull did not belong to the body it was found next to. In fact, the skull belonged to that of an adult male. Police were baffled. What had once been a closed missing persons case had now transformed into a thrice confounding mystery. One, who did the little girl's body belong to? Two, who did the skull belong to when there were no reports of a missing man from that area? And three, who indeed was the very much alive little girl living as Pauline in the Picard home. Oh, and naturally talk ran rampant throughout France. News of the bizarre crime even traveled overseas, where the New York Times ran an article on the case. Theories abounded. Some said it was Christophe Caramond all along. Some maintained it was Yves Mata who had confessed to the crime no less, despite the fact that he had a traumatic brain injury and could not often tell fact from reality. Others in the area brought up the recluse of Ronge Ramopi, though this lead never amounted to anything. Some gossiped that the Picards were abusive to Pauline and had killed her themselves and staged the disappearance to direct attention away from themselves. Now one of the more bizarre theories held that a rich couple 
had abducted Pauline to replace their daughter, who had died in order to secure an inheritance. This is consistent with the sighting of two strangers who had been seen watching Pauline play the day she disappeared. Of course, this story never led to much, and indeed might have been fueled by the romantic notions of a much more famous missing person case. 1922 was the year a woman claimed to be the surviving daughter of Nicholas Romanov, the last Tsar of Russia, Anastasia. Despite the many theories surrounding Pauline Picard's disappearance and likely murder, the person or persons who perpetrated this crime likely lived out their lives in obscurity, but with their undeserved freedom intact. One fact, however, seems certain in the minds of the Picard family. The little girl who had been living as their daughter was in fact not Pauline. Ravaged by grief, the Picards gave the little girl to the Franciscan sisters of Notre-Dame-Duve to be cared for. Oh, the mind can run wild with explanations for the mystery of the little girl from Shabouv. Was she a ghost? Was she a doppelganger capable of bilocation? Or was she merely an orphan girl on whom the Picards in their enormous grief, had projected their own hope. Because the Picards had been certain that the girl was Pauline when they first encountered her, and then just as convinced that she was not Pauline, upon discovering their daughter's clothes near the body in the field, both scenarios seem equally as plausible. Remember, there are two accounts of when Pauline was last seen that fateful day in April, once in the courtyard and once in the pasture. Is it then possible that there had always been two Paulines existing simultaneously? Tragically, in the care of the sisters, the little girl, who had once been Pauline, contracted measles during the epidemic of 1924 and passed away. She is buried under the name the Picards had bestowed upon her, beneath the shadow of the dead child with whom her fate had been intertwined. Mary Louise Pauline. No one ever identified that little girl, nor stated with any certainty that the body in the field is that of Pauline or indeed discovered the identity of the man's skull. These crimes remain to this day unsolved, but each remain tenuously connected by grief and a willingness to believe in impossible things.
This story was brought to you by the Crimes of the Occult miniseries and is a production of Crawl Space Media, produced, written, and edited by Jennifer Amell, and narrated by Lance Reinstierna. Please see the show notes for music credits. And if you like this miniseries, let us know by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>